0: Welcome back to another Department of Conversation. Uh, Hey, uh, we have been making sweet, sweet love in your ear holes since 2018. I have to say, uh, today's podcast, and we're 40 plus now, 40 plus podcasts, uh, is one of the ones I've been most excited about. My kids are jealous of today's podcast. They try to get the day off school to come and meet the amazing Joy Cowley. Joy Cowley, prolific author, spiritual woman, amazing New Zealander, came to Dunedin pretty much just to have a chat with us. There's a couple of other things she's doing, but that's why she managed to make her way here to Dunedin. So we're very, very grateful and very excited to bring to you today, right now, a Joy Cowley. Life
1: experience. Mm. And, you know, wisdom comes from life experience well digested, doesn't it?
0: Life experience well digested. Yeah. So it's got to be more than just life experience. Oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it doesn't mean it means the older you are, it doesn't necessarily mean the more you know. There has to be the digested part, well digested.
1: Well digested. Now, very often, if that life experience is unpleasant in some aspect, yep. our tendency is to project it out there. Um, someone is to uh. blame. Or um, some mythological creature, the devil, is to blame. Mm. But we project it out there instead of seeing it as a teaching, as something that we can process and learn from. Because I believe that spiritual growth comes through the tension of opposite states.
0: This is really interesting and we should probably announce that. I'm looking at Jason. I think we're just going live now. So we are live with Joy Cowley. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm absolutely honoured, excited, as is every person I speak to, my children included, that we get to speak to you today in our humble little podcast. So thanks for coming in.
1: Oh, Pat, look, I'm as ordinary as tap water. Please, I I, I protect my ordinariness. I think most (laughs) people
0: would disagree with that statement, but I I understand what you're saying because – Ordinary as tap water, people wouldn't be bringing out anthologies like this one, for example, which is what your latest book, the latest anthology. Yeah, well, they're, they're yes, stories well, it came stories, out last weekend. Yeah, yeah and yeah. there's stories from uh, previous stories you've written, um, reimagined. Re-illustrated by Giselle Clarkson. That's right. Beautiful illustrations. And it is, we were just saying, I won't, I won't embarrass myself by reading it out now. I just This one, this illustration really spoke to me, I don't know why, but about Uncle Andy's. You see that in the frame there, Jase? Is that good enough? That's good. Yeah. yeah. Uncle Andy's singlet, an example of the, uh, the drawings that are in there, the illustrations that are in there. But when, th-
1: when you look at that, Pat, you'll see that it's the illustrations that bring the words alive. That they really do.
0: I really think yeah. so. That's yep. interesting. Especially yep. coming from the author to say that. Uh,
1: two authors. I think the illustrator almost always is the co author. And what an illustrator does, t- to my words, yep. uh, is breathe life into them.
0: Uh, we had an expert on yesterday talking about Shakespeare, uh, Dr. William Germano, who's over, come to Dunedin from New York to deliver a lecture about. Shakespeare in the operatic form. And he said something similar, because you think about Shakespeare, you think about the written word, but he's basically saying it's the actor's job to actually bring life to those words. That's true. So it's uh That's true. Yeah, it's the, the, the combination of the two for the whole product.
1: So you would say that the actors are co authors. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, if you were yeah. using that analogy. Well that that's so certainly it's very clear in children's picture books yeah. that the children get the excitement from the illustrations and that directs them to the words.
0: That's it's also a very humble thing to say because I'm, I'm not suggesting you, Joy, but there might be some authors out there that think when their name is typically in bigger font on the front, that makes them more important. But yours almost sounds like you're saying the opposite because if the kids are drawn into the colours and the, yes, the pictures. to the illustrations. So what happens as books get... I mean straight away just because it's massive I'm thinking about Harry Potter very few illustrations but still has so it's so really all let, fully reliant on the words kids are a bit older who typically read those how does that journey work for those uh, for, for those imagining you know to, to to look and feel about a a YA fiction as opposed yeah. to a young child's yes, book yes
1: because that's that's for young children yeah, yeah. Um, and it's has visual impact now there's a different kind of visual impact in Harry Potter books. Have you noticed that the writing is very visual? Yeah. And she has this knack of putting you right in the situation, and it's magic. But she also explains the magic to make it um, digestible.
0: And I think one of the most amazing things about the the visual aspect of Harry Potter is that J.K. Rowling got to be the person telling the. F- she was the. Um, she was involved with the films. So she had the picture in her head, she wrote about it, but then she literally got to put it on screen because she was like, this is what Hogwarts looks like. And it wasn't someone else's interpretation of her words, it was actually her telling the set designers what the place should look like.
1: That's that's, was so important, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Because very often a creative person writes a script and puts her own story into it. Yeah. And because J.K. Rowling did that herself the films were true to the books,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think very much so. Maybe more so than any other, especially the YA area, books to movie adaptations. Have much of your writing been turned into film, uh, you know, uh, after school programs, short stories? No, no. Just because it's not something you've been interested in or just the opportunity hasn't turned up? Well, I don't do
1: that. Uh, A couple of books have been made into films. My first adult novel was made into a film, Roald Dahl bought the f- film rights for his wife, Pat Neal, yeah. who had had several strokes, and he wished to, to help with her rehabilitation. And my first novel, which was a, actually a, a very quiet and gentle love story called Nest in a Falling Tree, published in the 1960s, he, he bought the film rights and wrote a script. Turning it into a murder mystery
0: <laughs> Oh right Well
1: actually more of a horror story
0: So it changed from a, a soft and gentle love story to Saw yeah. The yeah. Saw movie series well,
1: it, was, it was a story about a young necrophiliac actually oh, so, right. it, so it was It was. He really went the whole hog on it um, But I, I really didn't mind It wasn't a good movie But he did pay a lot of money for it And that bought the property in the Marlborough Sounds Oh very good
0: had. So that's that's a, there's certainly an upstream, literally, effect for that for the movies.
1: Yeah, there was. Yeah.
0: Now, now you are a, a prolific. Would it be fair to acknowledge you're a prolific writer? The stories, number of stories you have published in excess of a thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there there are oh, a lot of early reading books because yeah. I've been very concerned with children who had. Well, my experience actually, when I was young, I was a late reader. Um. Because the reading system didn't suit me. Right. I was an imaginative child. I was very visual. And I had to learn letters and then two letters together and then short words and then longer words. There was no meaning. And it's important that children read for meaning. Right. So when my own son was having a little problems reading, his teacher intervened and said, why don't you write for him? Which I did. She held up the book he was supposed to be reading and said, there is no reason why any child should be interested in this book.
0: <laughs> what a great teacher. Yes,
1: yeah, she was a yeah, great teacher. Yeah, awesome. So she, um, I wrote for him, for other children. I actually asked, did story talk with him. I asked them questions about, if you could have any birthday party you like, what would it be like? I got some fantastic ideas and I'd write that down write in the third person their name in it and they would uh, take that home and their parents would read it to them and then I would have a carbon paper in in those days typewriter Yeah. <laughs> and then would make a little book of the story and just do little drawings in it as illustration. No child was ever reluctant to read their own story.
0: That's interesting. I, I remember, I actually have seen recently speaking to that there are opportunities to purchase books off the internet and they print it for you with your child's name in it. So uh-huh. it's, it seems to be a business now, whereas for you it just sounded like a bloody good idea.
1: Well, this yes, it was just making a little yeah. um, hand-printed print, um,
0: written book of, 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 the, of the child's story. So when you started writing for your son, was that sort of your first foray into children's writing? Is that literally you started kids' books for your own son, and it went from there?
1: Well, before that I used to write for uh, my children and had stories published in the school journals. Right. But I had uh, three children who read before they started school. He was the one who was a very practical little boy, and I was too young to know that children had different ways of learning. Sure. And he was an auditory learner. Right. And he still doesn't read fiction. He's now... Sixty, and he, <laughs> um, for entertainment, he picks up an encyclopedia at a Christmas party oh and nice. reads it all out to us, and we sit there as being very bored while it would reads us information. That's what he does. He reads for information. That's right. interesting.
2: When I was, I remember when I was in primary school and, and intermediate, my biggest complaint from my teachers was reads too much nonfiction. Needs to read <laughs> more fiction and. That's right. Gone the other well, I haven't gone the other way. Now I don't read much fiction, but well, I know no. I but I, make, I, well.
0: I see that in you now, Jace. Like Jason's the technical guru, and if we have a problem, I can he just—I mean, it's the internet version of it. He goes online and finds the answer. But it's the internet version of he gets out all the technical books to find the answer to the problem. So <laughs> I think that served us quite well, actually, Jace. Thanks for that. Appreciate <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: and uh, the, the family, um, our, our Edward. The, the family rely on him. They call him Mr. Fix-It.
0: Perfect, see? D- he, different way of learning, different source of information and, and for use in a different way.
1: And and he did an apprenticeship in aeronautical
0: mechanical engineering. So you're writing for your son. You're writing, I, I remember those journals. They still use journals today, don't they? Mm. You've got little at school, journals or something. Yeah, yeah, doing? so
2: my daughter's in... Um, year one so she's learning to read um, properly so she gets books and she's yeah they have levels so they go level one which yeah and they have just different you know that word that level one book might not have any words that are bigger than four letters sort yeah, of right. thing and yeah. then it's all very very large maybe only four word sentences
0: it's That's just right. for me go it's, up. Yes. it's it's such a vivid memory I can if I close my eyes I can still picture myself walking through the part it must have been a resource room like as a eight year old and getting those cardboard boxes with the angled lines on them that all the journals sat yeah, in. journals
1: stacked in them. Yeah, yes. and yeah. pulling
0: them out and getting the right one and taking it back to the classroom. It's a, it's a incredibly vivid memory. So it goes to show how ingrained that is in New Zealand culture for reading. Mm. Your books, obviously, and your work is all over the world. How do we stack up with our our reading, our understanding, you know, our kids compared to the rest of the world?
1: Well, I think our, our reading standards are very high. Compared with the West, rest of the Western world. Right. Now, I say the Western world because I've worked a bit in Singapore, Hong Kong, and the children there start reading when they're three years old. Right. Yeah, they come in very early and they read, they learn by rote. So there's a different way of learning. The children are very bright. Yep. The first time I talked to young children in a school, um, in Singapore. They bussed children in from other schools. So there was this huge, huge hall open at the sides, but it was steaming hot. I had a fan. The children were in uniforms and these little children were sitting cross-legged with their arms folded, <sighs> five and six-year-olds. Yeah. Uh, and all of the teachers, I could see just at the, see them at the back. Now, that wouldn't happen in New Zealand school. Teachers would be with the children. Right. But those children sat like that for an hour. When, the te- when I was about to start, the principal of the school said, uh, you will talk for an hour. And I said, oh, no, 20 minutes is long enough for this age group. Mm. And he said, the buses will come back in one hour.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: So I talked for an hour, or just on an hour, and they asked very sensible questions after that. I I was amazed. I hadn't seen that. But that became usual in those schools.
0: Singapore, I think, is listed as the country with the highest IQ in the world on average. So it kind of makes sense. I think so. Um, You could probably Google that for us, Jase. I I say things and I think, I wonder if that's rubbish or not. There you go, the 10 most educated nations in the world um.
2: Yeah, so I think it's. Um, so looking at the according to this website in particular, it says that we are seventh in the world so for the r- literacy rates. Top Japan, Russia, 10. Canada, Japan, Israel, USA, Japan South Korea. Japan is good too. Yeah. Does different. that
0: does that feel right to you? Uh, the the says the number one country for literacy in the world is Russia, or is that just because Putin says everyone can read? And uh,
2: I think it's because it's also to do with their. book. according to this, it says that they their literacy rates are good because fifty three percent of their population has a tertiary education. Oh.
1: There is a great emphasis on. Um, re- reading in Russia. Yeah. Now, I was there pre-Glasnost, so um, it was a, I, there were lots of elements in education, early education, which I really admired under mm. communist rule. For example, there was no violence uh, allowed in movies that children saw. Right, okay. that I mean, our children's movies are just full of violence. And the the importance of reading in, in the home um, was so much better than ours. Here, people will sometimes read to their children mm-hmm. and it's usually the mothers because the dads are busy, they're working. Um, there, parents, both parents, read to their children or, or did when I was there. Yeah. And that seemed to be universal. And it was like... Um, the music that they have in stores, you know, we have this what do you call it? When that boxed music they play in music, like elevator music. music. Yeah. yeah, it was always classical music. <laughs> right. They were educated on classical music too. So there was so much gentle emphasis on education mm. and taking um, those early years where children are sponges to give them the right kind of information that's going to help them later on.
0: You sound like um, you have some concerns for potentially where society is today, where children are today, compared to maybe trends and the way we did things in the past, so to speak. Am I, am I feeling that correctly? Is that something that you are a bit concerned about?
1: Yes, I am. Um, I'm concerned at the lack of of social interaction in young children. It's done through phones. Mm. Uh, I sometimes wonder about the loneliness of that. Children don't come home from school and then play and, uh, ga- and go, go into games with each other. <coughs> and I have to be careful about... Um, this is an opinion coming from someone who didn't have that mm-hmm. because I know that my parents thought that the radio would uh, actually... <laughs> Be the actually, death of us. Yeah, it, it would absolutely ruin family yeah. life because people wouldn't talk to each other yeah. after their it's, meal. It's,
0: it seems every generation has the same concerns mm. about the following generation. I mean, you know, my my parents being concerned about... Uh, I guess when I was growing up in the 80s, there was an influx of, you know, it's where the VCR came out, so a version of on-demand input and the music I was listening to, whereas their parents were probably worried about Elvis and the music they were listening to. And like you say, it's I guess there's going to get to a point where actually the concerns of the parent um, become more valid. Like, so obviously Elvis didn't really do anything to harm that generation maybe the music I listened to didn't do anything but at some stage like I listened to some of the words that come out on the songs that my 10 year old has on Spotify now and I kind of go crumbs I don't really want that in my house let's delete that one from the playlist thanks little one and she does but yeah Show me, put, put that one up Jace, about the about the phones and the newspapers
2: it's just, it's just a classic you know Mm. Um, for those listening at home, it's just a picture of the uh, mm. of the <laughs> 1950s, and everybody's with a graphic over the top saying, "You know, I hate it when everybody stares. at just stares at their phone when they're on the train, and it's a bunch of people reading." So the saying that, so we all
0: stare at our phones, but in the 1940s, the news- 50s, yeah, they all stare where, where, where at their where newspapers. Where
2: was that? I hate I it when everybody just stares at their phone. Was that on the in train. England? Possibly, I think it was probably everywhere. But I was just there's another thing I saw the um, I just saw about this the other day. It's a yeah. it's a campaign. I think it's partic- particularly in the US. Um, I'll just bring it up there we go. Um, where there is basically a campaign. They're saying wait till uh, wait until eighth. Which is a campaign, which is kind of a bit ridiculous. It needs grade? to be. Into, it so I think it's eighth grade. It might mean eight years old, but yeah, through
0: So, you know what, so they're through saying through that eight. you should mm. wait,
2: wait till eighth, wait till eighth grade yeah. to um to give your your children a smartphone, so that yeah, exactly as you're saying, you know, they can learn to socialize. Well, that's the third, to, yeah.
0: So in America, that would be the equivalent of year nine in New Zealand, which is the equivalent of the first year of secondary school. So that's is that, I yeah. see pre-
1: preschoolers with their parents' phones. Yeah.
0: There's sometimes for me. There's a bit of a difference sometimes letting a kid have a bit of a tutu, yeah. Whereas I've got a daughter at uh, in year five, so that's second to last year of primary school. She's got friends with phones, and I'm like, what the hell? You know, it's like uh, to me that's too young. Mm. Whereas I think maybe secondary school is about the age in this day and age that they get them. I don't know if when I was growing up what technology to. I mean, computers etc. were coming in through my mm. teenage years. But, yeah, but it's, but it's different. I used to do some work with Ian Grant, who I'm sure you know know yeah. of, and yeah. it used to be, you know, have your family computer in the lounge because then when the kids are working on it, the parents can kind of keep an eye on what's going on. But now this thing mm. um, is, oh, they say things like this is more powerful than the first ships that went into space yeah or basically right. like you mm. almost um, yeah you
2: what, what not not including Apple watches but even just a, almost a, a, a calculator these days has got more computing
0: power because so they now didn't I've, have I, I've got a computer in my pocket all the time <coughs> that is so in other words that whole have your computer in the lounge doesn't work because kids have got computers in their pockets mm. and I think you have to be a bit of an ogre as a parent they say I tell my kids that their, their friends will hate me Because I don't do things. I don't let my kids charge their phones in their room. I've got two who are at high school, so they've got phones. They charge them out in the lounge area. Um, My eldest daughter has a laptop. I'm like, you charge it out in the lounge area. They're not allowed in their bedroom. Oh, but dad, it's my alarm. So I bought them alarm clocks. So so, so and, and, and I the reason I say your friends are gonna hate me is their friends come mm. around and I'm like, mm. Yeah, you you guys leave your phones out as well. There's no phones in bedrooms in this house. But actually it's not that difficult to do. It's not that difficult as a parent or a caregiver or a, you know, person in authority to actually go, This is the line and this is how we run in this house. I don't know why parents seem to be too concerned about doing that. Maybe some parents want to be more friends than parents. That's a bit of a judgy thing to say, but it's
2: interesting though. And the flip side of that, though, in our in our house, is that um, my daughter, that I was talking about, that's learned to read um, a lot. A, a component. you know, we read to her from from day one. Um, every night before bed, she gets bedtime story. Um, and when and they get older and can ask for more, it becomes bedtime stories, plural. Um, but she has, um, when she gave up having her nap, she started having a quiet time in her bedroom. And so we gave her, she when she got old enough to, she actually had one of our iPads, which was locked to a particular yeah. reading app. And it was this little game that she could play where she had to collect letters and build words. And p- because of that, I think that actually gave her a really, she could mm. she could do most of the alphabet and do some basic reading before she started primary school. Mm. And I think part of that was because she was engaged with the iPad. And so... It's one of those. It's one of those 22s. It's like it's actually a really helpful device, but you need to be very, very strategic as a parent when you're using well, them.
0: It's amoral, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's what. Its technology is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It's how we use it. Mm, I mean, kids can yes, be on course. their smartphones all the time, and it can ruin their brains. Or like Jason just said, I guess little ears can be using them for educational games, and it might help their reading. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, i I, I was a reader. Well, once I. Sp- learned to read, I, I became addicted to reading. And I can remember my Scottish grandmother saying to me, Too much reading, it'll make you soft in the head. It <laughs> <laughs> probably right. But uh, so she was worried about the amount that I of reading that I used to do. Um, yeah, I it's suppose every, every generation does have concerns about the younger generation. But I think, where is the physical contact? Where is the inter- yeah. physical interaction?
0: Uh, I have, and, and you're right, because, you know, I also have seen in my house four teenage girls sitting there on the couches, all of them on their phones. Yes. And I've walked in on, and I've actually, <laughs> it's because I'm an ogre, I've actually walked into that lounge sitting and gone, okay, you guys might as well go home now. And they've looked at me and I've gone, well, you, you could be doing this from your own home. You could be playing on the phone in your own home. Oh, no, but we want to do it together, but you're not interacting. Mm. So it's just, yeah. Yeah. I, I do think I do think that in society in general at the moment, and it, well, not at the moment, always, people have kind of thrown up their hands too easily and gone, oh, what can we do about it? Oh, you know, like in the classic, I remember when I worked as a talkback host, people used to complain about not being able to buy a house because houses are so expensive. And I would always say to people, there's always a choice. So you live in central Auckland, you can't afford to buy a house, fair enough. Do you want to move to Matamata, where you can afford to buy a house? No. Okay, but just be aware, it's not that you can't buy a house, it's that you're making a choice yes. to stay in position A. And that the people are like, well, we can't move. And I go, okay, well, that's fine. But there's always choices, but people tend to throw their hands up in the air and say, can't do anything about this. I think 99% of the time, we can do do something about most things, but we may just choose not to.
1: I agree with that, yeah. Um, but I, I do worry about the suicide rate in New Zealand. Yeah. And is is there a connection there with loneliness, with negative news, for example? I used to have a... a, a well, I did not know what I'd call it. went out to schools, but it was a little programme about helping children to understand that when they watch television, mm. they are watching what someone wants them to see. Yeah. And if we look at our news and check – these children used to check what was positive, what was neutral and what was negative negative. and largely negative, the news –
0: yeah, of course. If, so it, if it bleeds, it leads, It's they part say. of that
1: bullfight mentality yeah. we have. I mean, we even have to make our weather forecast sound like grand opera. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, so how is that affecting the children? Because we think it's good for them to see the news and they sit there and they're absorbing all of this threatening stuff.
0: Well, and especially now in this day and age where... The news is not just six pm TV one. Sit down and watch it with the, with the phone. it is again. You know CNN sending what Donald Trump's up to straight to my phone. That's right. It is um, you know a news item popping up from stuff linked to a video on YouTube of all, so it's immediate as well. You know, should something big happen, probably the first place to go to to find out about it is Twitter, because someone is there on the street watching it, tweeting about what's going on and then it disseminates through actual journalists to get the... And how much of that story. is
1: positive? Because you don't
0: do Twitter. None. Yeah, none, none. Oh, I mean, they, Well, how much of Twitter is positive? Not none. No, there's, there's plenty of positive things on Twitter, but, but it's, it's a bit shocking, actually. If you look in Facebook especially, there are algorithms written to drive content to you that you interact with, but what they've found is people typically interact more with things they hate than things they love. Mm -hmm. So therefore, people within some social media I know it happens on Facebook. I don't know about the others. The algorithm set up behind them as to what they're going to see is more often linked towards stuff they're going to disagree with than agree with because when you disagree, you complain. It's like Mm -hmm. when you're at a restaurant, if it's the worst food in the world, you go, oh, this is terrible, and you make a complaint. If it's the best food in the world you're more likely just to walk out and think that was lovely but you don't yeah it's not the equivalent
2: yeah that, that, that that's actually a hundred percent. I worked in retail and got retail training when I was um, a student and they actually literally say that they say that if a person has a bad experience they will tell 10 people um, if they have a good experience they might tell two yeah um, yep. and so that's why you've got to be yeah. that's why you've got to be really good at resolving conflicts with customers
0: so so how do you so how do you get around all this negative input on, on children then what do you do well,
1: I, first of all, to make sure that they don't see this is what the world is. It's it's what someone wants you to see.
0: I remember someone once saying um, at the end of every news bulletin, it might have been an American comedian, they should say, um, so that's how 12 people spent the day today. The other 320 million had a lovely day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think we should take a step back and just look at how does this affect children, especially teenagers, who are full of hormones and are great one day and depressed the next day. Mm. What's going to tip them over?
0: Well, and also, I mean, I've been talking to my my daughters about this recently, uh, then to think about where they are in their their growing up. You know, the, the, the idea of the frontal lobe being so important to you know consequences and that not being fully developed in blokes until the mid 20s and you know in females more like early 20s and so decisions and stuff that teenagers <sighs> are making when they're 16 17 thinking the world is ending or whatever give it give it a few years and wait till you're fully develop, developed and then let's readdress that mm.
1: yes yes well i i think during world war 2 i used to hear adults saying that the world was going to come to an end mm. And that's always been a prediction in, in, um, in fundamentalist churches. They've always the known that the, 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 yep, the, the end is coming. Mm. Uh, and they'll, they'll find texts to prove that. Mm. So there is this, it's, something is feeding the negative in people. And it's probably news. I mean, I have friends who don't watch news now and
0: they, right. they avoid it. When you started this this part of the conversation, you referenced suicide figures. Mm. I wonder, Jace, suicide figures today, with this massive exposure to negative news, versus say suicide stats in the nineteen, let's say, eighties, where you didn't have the twenty-four hour news cycle, you didn't have, you know, negative news coming to your phone in your pocket. Are they are they similar, or are they? Well, there's um, there's some stats. Yeah, so this is a, um, this is on the stats
2: website, and they've right stopped going the
1: v- back before the 1980s. Yeah, right. yeah, well, that, right that's, that's the to, thing um, is that they don't
2: seem to have much more data. But uh, it about seems the
1: 1950s.
0: Oh. Oh, I was at the
2: age range. That's age people? ranges. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is like 1996.
0: Goes to the 90s, um, which is which is the internet age. Yeah. yeah but yeah, the suicide, exactly. I mean, as the blue line's male is drop is dropping down.
2: It sort of, sort of looks like yeah. It doesn't look like it's dr- uh, it's greatly improving or decreasing or getting better or, or, or worse according to these stats, but at the same time this ends in two thousand thirteen. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is only really you know, Facebook was about here, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, we won't yeah, yeah. have seen the repercussions in this in this data. There could all of some be a spike in the data and, and also and unfortunately they are no longer
0: And also kids who are 10, when Facebook come out, their stats, quote-unquote stats, may not be prevalent for another 10 years. Yeah, you're not going to
2: see it. The trouble with these sorts of things is that the the ramifications take years to to show up in the data, and by that stage it's too hard to correct.
0: And if the dark blue, I'm looking at this graph here, if the dark blue is the total, it seems to be hovering between about 15 and 10. So that seems pretty stagnant through that 15 to 18 year cycle. Yeah. But, but, I mean, in New Zealand as well, we're terrible. I mean, when I say we're terrible, we have terrible statistics around suicide. And you think about, it's interesting, I mean, what, what causes that, what brings happiness? And you look at stats around people with money, for example, and you think, oh, you know, I've, I've got a jet ski. How could I be unhappy? But people with money, they have the same suicide rates as, uh, rates as people without money. So what is it? What does society need? What do our children need? to find uh, that genuine happiness to drive them away from, you know, issues like suicide, which would be, I guess, the extreme. But even coming back from that, you mentioned depression before or isolation or... Isolation
1: is a big thing, I think. Um, In (coughs) 1978, I backpacked around South America for about two and a half months. And I, I was in countries because I was, I was doing it on a shoestring, I, I was travelled on the trucks with the campaninos and I thought, these people have no right to be so happy. Why are they so happy? Mm. I, they were. And the average expectancy of life then in Bolivia was uh, 45 for women and 43 for men. Wow. Well, that's, that's not a life as far as we're concerned.
0: Certainly nothing to be happy about.
1: And... I soon learned that if I wanted to buy something in a shop, I didn't go in and ask for it. That would be very rude. I would ask the man how he was, how was his wife, how were his children. We'd have this conversation. And then I would get my purchase and behind me there'd be a long line of people waiting and they'd be talking. And I actually picked up some good recipes and had good conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um And and waiting in those lines, but people had time for each other.
0: It's really interesting because I'm feeling a little bit guilted for what you just said because I I stand a new world behind someone who's having a conversation with the cashier, and I go, oh, just hurry up, come on, (laughs) I've got places to be. But yeah, I mean, what you're I mean, I, I think about the kind of Spanish culture of siestas. And, you know, having a break and a chill out and a rest in the afternoon. And it makes me think <laughs> there's some kind of parallel to what you're talking about. You know, it's it's just taking time, it's talking, it's spending time with people. And
1: apparently suicide rates are very low, very
0: unusual. Do you think that that that's a key marker for how a country's doing, suicide rates? Do you think that's like a – if you're going to pull out some key markers, that's one of the ones that if it's high, look out, there's trouble in that country.
1: It's an – an affluent, um, a, a symptom of affluence, yeah. suicide, because it is in Japan too. Uh, and they are very concerned about the suicide rate of young people, people who are driven, they've got expectations placed on them.
0: Academically a lot as well, yeah. isn't there? Mm. I've heard lots of stories about in Japan, if a, a child or a student doesn't reach a certain a place where they're expected to be that can be enough to tip them over.
1: Yes, it can.
0: That's, that's interesting. Terrible. I've just found out. So it,
1: what uh, makes them feel worthless?
0: That would be... Would that be not, not living up to the standards expected of them in that one example?
1: That That's what, one factor. Feeling alone in this, not having family support, mm-hmm. um, and generally not having... A system around you of human support and comfort, lacking yeah. in friends.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because yeah, I'm just reflecting on the friends. my my daughters, they they chat away on their phones to their friends, and on one level, I kind of go, well, they're connecting with they they know these people in real life. so they're their friends from school. It's not like they're just strangers on the internet. but another another level, I kind of go, well, is that worse than picking up the phone and talking to them? Is picking up the phone and talking to them worse than? When I say worse, I mean uh, not as effective in building mm. relationship as walking down the road and sitting at the bus stop and meeting your mate there and chatting. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. But isolation would be a horrible thing. I mean, mm. I guess that's why people who are in places like solitary confinement, you know, get psychological issues. That would be the I guess most severe mm. form of isolation, being forced into isolation when you don't want it. Psychological issues that come along with that, why things like the World Health Organisation have rules around how long you're allowed to leave someone in solitary confinement, because mm. obviously it's recognised that that's an unhealthy place to be.
1: It also happens with animals too. People think it might be nice to have uh, one parrot as a pet, and, and the,
0: the poor parrot goes mad. <laughs> Dogs as well. Dogs are pack animals. Mm. Having one dog yep. or not, not allowing them to have their pack. Yeah, gosh. Uh, um, you, you have another, obviously, an interest. In fact, maybe you could retell the story we had in the car about your qualifications. And you found uh, a faith, a spirituality in the 80s. Yeah. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I, I've always had that um, feeling of otherness a feeling of presence of otherness i used to make a M- meaning up something s- more than
0: what we can see
1: and feel more, something okay. more than me that that sometimes warned me about something and i'd look up and yep there'd be a car coming yep uh, right. or that suggested a better way of doing something it was a, it was a quiet and positive influence and i made up this story about being uh, having a a twin sister who died when we were born and she was in heaven and she was telling me things. Right. That was a a small child's understanding of it. Sure. I'd always, uh, uh, my parents had a fundamentalist faith. It was pretty narrow and while I didn't take that on because it was rather negative.
0: So we just pause for a sec. When you say fundamentalist faith, well, just so people who don't quite understand they, what that means. Well,
1: yes. Well, they believed that the Bible um, was dictated by God.
0: So, they, if, if for people who don't understand, maybe the context within a Christian faith. I mean, uh, within within um, media. You talk about, uh, and I'm not saying that your parents were like this, but when you see people like the Brian Tamakis of the world or people refer to them as the happy, clappy Christians or that kind of group of people um, are considered fundamentalists. They believe fundamentally that like the Bible is literally... The Bible is 100,
1: literally yeah. 100% cool. true. So
0: just to context that for some people. Yeah, yeah.
1: And and, and there's, there's no argument because they will defend that <laughs> yeah. vigorously. Because they were in a very small space themselves, and they hold on to that. Yeah. But I was I was a child who asked questions. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so you were trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess. Um, I, I can remember once saying to my mother, "Well, why did God God knew everything? Yeah, so why did God make Adam and Eve um, so that the, that they were frail and they would." Uh, do be disobedient. Why yeah. did he make them like? that? Why did
0: he make them to fail? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, of course, now the answer is, this is we grow spiritually. I believe this is life school, right. and that we grow spiritually through the tension of opposite states. I find the Adam and Eve story. Quite interesting because it was written at the time of the Babylonian exile, you know. It wasn't the first book written. Mm-hmm. And these poor Jews have been taken out of their promised land, their Garden of Eden. Um, whether they believed God dwelled in the temple, well, that had been destroyed. And there they were threatened with extinction. And that's when they wrote the story of the Garden of Eden. They believed that they had done something terrible to deserve this because in Judaism in those days every little bit of misfortune came from the sin either of theirs or their parents Right. so that was the sub context of that story but there's some wisdom in it the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil on that tree, you know they ate the forbidden fruit well it wasn't two trees, it wasn't two fruits, it was a Knowledge of good and evil was contained in one fruit mm-hmm. and if you ate that fruit you acquired wisdom,
0: yeah 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 so you knew you you didn't need to rely on this omnipotent being to to pass on information you had the information yeah yeah that
1: that was that's what it was about
0: yeah so on some levels you were you were godlike or you didn't need a god because mm-hmm. you had the information you needed
1: so that that was um that's a, a great parable for spiritual growth hmm. that if we were perfect, there'd be no growth true. perfect means being complete,
0: yeah, yeah and, and I mean I mean analogies of that is you look at people who, for example, are great athletes, they're at perfection, they've got all the skills they need, no need for growth. you look at someone who's uh, out, out of out of shape and overweight and stuff, they have an opportunity to improve their place to get to perfection. Yeah. Perfection in quotes, yeah, perfection.
1: I but I believe that uh, spiritually, and by spiritually, I mean our perception of ourselves mm. and the world all around us, uh, um, that never ends and, and till our death. We just just keep keep on growing. Right. Um, And that's what we're here for. To grow? Well, I would say, if you're going to ask me what I believe, I would say, I believe that we come from a greater reality and Mm. we return to that greater reality and our little time here in life school is for spiritual growth. Right. Now, that greater reality, I don't put, I wouldn't put a name on it. The word... G-O-D is, is useful mm. But it's presence And the more you grow spiritually The more you're aware that it's managing your life for you it, It's all around you It's in everything And the most difficult thing that we can do Is to sit on the road And worship the maps
0: Explain that Yeah
1: Well For me Growing up The map was the Bible Right. And I had to go a journey a lot further than that. So, in my 30s, I was looking at other religions and finding that at a mystical level, all of the religions in the world come out with light and love. And we need to be, we're very confident about what we know. We say the world is this, the universe is that. What we should say is we perceive it to be this or we perceive it to be that because all we can know is what is relayed through our five senses and we don't have good sensory systems compared with some animals. It's true. (laughs) You look at a flock of birds flying and they wheel around like tea leaves in a drain. You know, they... um, they never collide. Right. They must have a consciousness that that holds them all in formation. Try doing it with the same number of planes and see what you got.
0: Or just people running around a rugby field, like imagine trying to get them all yep. to move at the same yep. time.
1: Yep. So we we don't have a greatly developed sensory system. Right. And if we didn't have that For example, if we left our bodies behind and moved on, the greater reality might just be pure light and the universe might be just pure light. How much of the universe do we really know and how much is sensory experience? And a man said to me, ah, yes, but these days we have all of this technology which tells us what the university is, mm-hmm. what the universe is. And I said, yeah, but how do we read this technology mm. with the same five senses?
0: So it seems that, that we know what we know, almost what we can experience, what we can see, taste, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you're talking about, I mean, you're a spiritual director – It means you direct people spiritually and help them along. How do we then step into what that spiritual is? How do we trust what it is if we can only really trust our senses?
1: Well, I believe that we are spiritual beings on a human journey, not the other way around.
0: When you said that before, not to interrupt you, I thought about boarding school. It's like we've come from somewhere somewhere we're in an education you know, journey and we go back to somewhere. I thought, oh, I went to boarding school. Well, it sounds like boarding school. So we leave home, we go to boarding school and then we end up going back home again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, growth is the imperative of the universe as far as we know. It is, it, growth is the imperative of this planet mm-hmm. too. Everything is in a state of growth or else in a state of decay to, to grow into something new. Well, I think we, we, we are meant to grow too. And the I, way I, I say I think that we are spiritual beings on a human journey, there is some evidence that we come
0: from somewhere else. What evidence do you cite for that? We're working with children. Okay, explain that. Explain for me. Evidence yeah. that we come from somewhere else.
1: Young children seem to have a memory of something. Yeah. Now, the children, when I wanted to do research for five-year-olds, I don't talk to five-year-olds. They're not reflective. I'd go to eight-year-olds and say, when you were five or when you were four, what oh, yeah. were your favourite things? What were you scared of and what did you like? And so I'd get information that way. And children will talk about their dreams and they have commonly dreamers of being somewhere very, very nice, which is um, and one girl used the word "sunshiny, a sunshiny place, and then she that, that it all turned nasty, and it all broke up. Now that's like a birthing dream, right. So psychologists. Um, acknowledged that um, that we, we had this sense of otherness when we were quite young. And they said that really it was the time in the womb. For, for the, well, nowadays they can put um, electrodes on babies in the womb. They can check babies in the womb quite accurately. And the time in the womb is quite stressful. Babies can feel uncomfortable with what the parent has eaten or the noise that's around mm-hmm. and they can feel cramped so it's a, can be a stressful time so where does the notion of perfection come from if i asked you to describe an extra color in the rainbow you wouldn't be able to do it no how can you describe perfection when nothing in this world is perfect? Mm. Everything in a state of becoming. And to attribute that to the time in the womb is not valid.
0: So you're suggesting that the, the feelings of being in a happy place, paraphrasing, is pre, <laughs> pre-womb?
1: Everyone, everyone is aspiring for perfection. Mm-hmm. That's something that's within us. Where does it come
0: from? What do you think? Where does the aspirations of perfection come from? I'm a very lazy, non-focused man, so I might be the wrong person to ask that question. <laughs> no, okay. So if I, I, I let me let me, con- yeah, me contextualise that for myself. Um, where does it come from? For me, for example, it comes from a desire to want to succeed, a desire to want to be able to see what I'm doing be valid and valued and worthwhile why why does I want it to be succeed to succeed and be valid I don't know I think I want to to, what I'm thinking of right now because it's my current focus is actually this podcast not you and me but what I'm trying to do here with this podcast why do I want to see this be successful I think this adds this is going to sound really horribly arrogant But I think this adds a positive aspect to society. I think this brings something into this realm of media that's not here at the moment. I enjoy what I'm doing as well. I love this. I want to do this for the next 10 years full time if I could. Mm. So there's an enjoyment factor. And I know that if I reach perfection in what I'm doing here, that means I will have the ability to do more of it because perfection in this would mean – Enough people listening and watching to be able to then monetize it, to be able to then live off it, to be able to then do it more. So, feelings of, of of a desire to be able to do more of these because I love them so much is one of the reasons I wanted to get to a point of perfection.
1: Good, Pat. That's good. Is that working? You, you've
0: <laughs> described how
1: it works. Yeah. But you haven't described why. Why it works? Why do you have this desire? It's because it's in all of us. It is when people. I think when people lose themselves, they lose that that spark of light of desire that's in them. Mm. Um, and and that's you know that's when people decide they get they just they're not worth it. They have no worth. So that's the problem with people who suicide.
0: They don't have that spark? That spark is diminished?
1: Now, in Judaism, they, they believe that you, you can only talk about spiritual matters in parable, and so do I.
0: Okay. So, so in parable only, not in, in a literal sense? Not in a literal sense. Okay.
1: Because they say the head has words, the heart has no words, and right. this belongs to the heart. Okay. So one of the parables that's very meaningful for them is a creation parable, And they say, in the beginning, God created this huge clay vessel and God blew the fire of love into this vessel. Mm. And God's love was so strong that the vessel shattered into trillions of pieces and creation was born. So each of us is a shard of clay with a spark of God in it. And it's our duty on this life to fan that spark into a flame So that's another way of describing what you've just described Mm. to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, sparking something little. There's a drive. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting, I wonder as well about that. I have a drive in me personally for some areas of life, and other areas of life I'm like, that's right. Don't really care about that. And I wonder if that comes down to our individual spark? Like, it's not a it's not a societal spark. Everyone, I mean, Jace is a filmmaker. I'm sure if you asked me about his spark, it would be, what, sitting at the Oscars, Jace? Would that be the ultimate end of your spark?
2: Uh, it would be the point at which I realise that I haven't wasted the rest of my life, but wouldn't necessarily, it's not the ultimate goal. Because once, once I get an Oscar, I'm not going to quit. Yeah, sure, <laughs> um, okay. You know, that sort of thing. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like... I mean, I have no ambition. That's not a spark in me. Yeah, yeah. You, you have no idea. You, you. If you got an Oscar, you'd be like, "How did this happen?"
0: Um, <laughs> it's like Kobe Bryant. And it's and Kobe Bryant I would his hate Oscar. You.
2: But um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's. it's um, yeah, the whole like,
0: what, what, what is the point of an Oscar? I feel like, I feel like it's we're a, in a spiritual direction meeting right now. It's an yeah. inner light
1: that is, and it's connected with love. Yeah, it, it's there. Um. And I, I, I believe it's in every healthy person. I think when people feel worthless, they lose sight of it. They've got a lot of negative stuff hiding it.
0: Right. So hiding it but not disappear. So the spark's still disappear. there. No, it's still there. Right.
1: And, know, and it just goes back and I think it gets recycled.
0: So, of course, it leads me on to your spark. Your you have multiple sparks. I mean, this here again. This is just an example of your latest work. <laughs> yeah. This is a spark that you've been fanning for how many decades? Oh, don't, don't know. Two, three. I, I used to
1: tell my sisters <laughs> stories every night. Yeah, it was our way of remaking our childhood. I think.
0: And and have you reached perfection in this spark? The spark that is your writing?
1: I don't couldn't wouldn't use the word perf- perfection. Because some of my writing gives me pleasure, and some of it bores me. (laughs) 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 The things in there give me some kind of pleasure, and they are mostly funny. That's why I like writing for children, because um, it's funny. (laughs) And it's never too late to go back and enjoy your childhood, is it?
0: No. Do you feel this keeps you young?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah.
0: yeah. How often do you get out and mix with kids in your books? Like I'm thinking about, you know, do you get into schools and do you read to them from your own books? I don't visit
1: schools now because that just got too huge. Right. But last weekend, the publishers wanted uh, to have a launching Actually, they wanted it in Wellington. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, look, why not come up to Featherston and let's have a children's party? Oh, cool. Which we did. We had about 500 people in the hall and about half of those were children. And the lionesses in Featherston put <laughs> on a children's afternoon tea with little triangular sandwiches with hundreds and thousands, of Cheerios with tomato sauce, of you know, course. all the things Sounds that great. kids like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And it was just a wonderful afternoon. It, it really, really, and was. that
0: was the official launch of the book. It was the official launch, and that's great. That's, that's, that feels a bit Kiwi as well, like to have that kind of launch as opposed to being in a Barnes and oh, Noble the in the middle of things, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And the, the, there was a young man who helped me. He had because my sight's so poor. He had post-it notes and he handed it round. He's nine years old. And usually when people phone me or knock on the door, they want something. But there was this knock on the door two months ago and this nine-year-old boy, he was a neighbour's boy, said, Joy, you're old and I want to help you.
0: <laughs> How delightful. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah.
1: And I get him to pick up the cabbage tree leaves on the lawn to get them out of the way of the
0: mower. Yeah, they don't do well with the mower. No, they, the don't. they don't. have the same
1: experience. So um, – so he helped me uh, with with the launch, quite seriously, and actually he was on television on Saturday night, TV One, and he there was a shot of him, and his dad and his mother were so proud because he was on TV.
0: And that was that was all driven by him. He just popped over and said, "What can I do to help you?" Yeah, that was two yeah two months
1: ago. It was oh. so I asked. I knew t- the TV One was coming, and I said. Jack, would you like to come over? and <laughs> So we, we got him in too.
0: The idea of... I was going to ask you as well actually about your books. Do you know how, how many languages they've done it? No, no I don't. But is it everywhere? Is it in every corner I, look, of the planet? They
1: send me copies of the um, translations and lots and some of um, fairly remote European languages and... Um, it's funny getting getting your book and you can't read it. <laughs> yeah.
0: And this one here, the anthology, launched last weekend in New Zealand. Is this going around the world? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is it already around the world or have we got it in New or Zealand no, first?
1: No, it, 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 but it's been bought by other um, – uh, Gecko Press are, are very good at marketing and they they go to the book fairs. And,
0: and, and will you tour on this? Like is that something you would still do? To – Wherever, if if someone in America wanted you to come and talk about your book and your, something no. you're still, no, you're not interested in that anymore. No,
1: it's not the lack of interest; it's just lack of energy. I am 83. so, yeah. you know, that, um,
0: can I just say as well? My,
1: my I'm physically strong. Yeah, but yeah. The eyes are are, are weak. Yeah. So writing notes um, is quite difficult, and uh, finding my way around airports, et cetera.
0: See, if I was a professional, Jace, we could have done a proper interview, not just had a bit of a chit-chat, and then all around the world could have used our interview about, about your book. <laughs> oh, good. But I'm not a professional and I'm not a proper interviewer. We just <laughs> chat in this place.
1: Well, that, that, that's, uh, that's what I like about it. It's informal.
0: The jumbaroo.
1: The worst thing any that can happen to any author is for them to believe they're
0: advertising. Right. <laughs> Almost any person, not just any author. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, everyone, has, everyone has advertising, don't they? It may not be official advertising, yeah. but everyone has yeah. advertising. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this is available in, in shops now. I think that um, it's amazing. It's amazing. What, what's, what's next for Joy Cowley? It feels like you've sort of done everything. It's interesting. You also said that you wouldn't classify this as perfection, but in our conversation earlier, you did say, "You know, what is perfection?" You asked me the same question, and why? So, if this is not how you classify, do you have a? Do you have a? What is perfection for you? Perfection
1: answer? comes after a arrival. It's the, it's the end. There's no arrival in this life. Right. But you know, quantum theory has some very interesting. Um, statements to make that sort of support this they say that energy does not disappear from the universe Mm -hmm. if something is destroyed in one place it will appear in another now how does that sound about um, reincarnation Mm. and I also remind children, too, that ever since the beginning of the universe, there has never been another person exactly like them and there never will be again. That, too, is true, as as far as we know.
0: It's interesting to think about that. There is also, um, I was listening to Neil... DeGrasse, Degrasse Tyson. Tyson, I always get those wrong way around the other day. And talking about within the universe and parallel universes, how there's parallel, a scientific theory of parallel universes doing everything that you can imagine ever doing. So there's a parallel universe where I'm the author, and you're interviewing me right now. It's the other mm. way around, and there's a parallel universe where, you know, we're doing this exact same video, but it's a different book of oh, video. Sorry,
2: yeah. And there's a video where we're where we're doing the exact same thing we're doing now, but we're all frogs. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know? yep. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's the branching universe theory, and then just yeah, the fact that there's infinite possibilities. I remember seeing a infinite great infinite possibilities. Yeah. but
1: we get so caught up on this one little person, um, and we insulate ourselves mm. and become a prison of one.
0: Yeah, and that comes back to the isolation thing as well. It's the isolation.
2: With that, with that idea of that we're all unique because um, I've, I've, I've heard that in the context of, um, you know, I've been to a lot of script writing seminars and so forth, and, and, and I often question, you know, um, who am I to tell a story or to tell my story or, you know, surely, especially as a, as a middle-class white man, which um, and there's no shortage of middle-class white men that are, um, are ready to offer their opinions on things. Um, and so I'm so you know, like why should I be allowed to tell my story or a story and then people were just responding by saying, you know, there's nobody like you. There's that's there's right. nobody that's had your life experiences, and is going to mm-hmm. tell a story like you will tell a story. Mm-hmm. And so I guess um, putting that into a, kind of a question, what would you say to young authors that are considering, you know, they're going? Oh, I think first I first of all you know?
1: drop any labels.
0: <laughs> so don't call yourself an author.
1: Don't don't call you. Well, yes, don't do that. Just you've got all we've all got stories within us. And don't call yourself a middle-class white man. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's
2: a that, label. It is a label, that's right, yeah. and, yeah. and, and, and I know people
1: other people use that. Don't, don't you use yeah, it? Yeah, and and,
2: that, and that's the thing as well, is that oh. um, is people can get caught up in the fact that they think they don't have a story to tell because they are a part of a uh, majority. Um, yeah. And the thing is that yeah. there, is, there isn't anybody like you know, that young four-year-old or that young eight-year-old who really likes this thing and wants to write about it. And, and, you know, I've had many conversations as well about creativity and people say, you know, we're not, oh, I'm not a creative person. It's like, well, actually, we're all creative people yeah. um, going into the spiritual thing. Like I've, I, I'm myself, I'm a spiritual, a spiritual person and, and we're all created, if, um, if you believe the Judeo-Christian sort of Bible and so forth, we're all created yeah. in the image of the God, of God, the God figure. And he's he is a creator. We are so therefore we are creators. And so everybody, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a, a film writer, whether you're a, a podcaster, <laughs> whether you are a, a factory worker, we are all creative. So yeah, you can't just go. I'm an author and you're not. We
1: that's are right. Yeah. That's right. No, um, that, that's the ego speaking, isn't it? <laughs> the um, but uh, you know, there's the, someone asked me. On a, a recent interview, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? And I said, well, mm. religion is a path we choose; spiritual is what we are. And I think that's
0: true. Is there an element that religion feels like also the the construct around someone's spirituality? Like, I think when I think about religion, I think of the organisations and the buildings and the 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 groups, the 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 foundations. And then spirituality is the people and where they go with it a little bit. I don't Mm. know. I mean, like for you, for example, speaking of buildings surrounding you, when you had your spiritual journey and you came to a place where you, you know, jumped into a particular boat, you chose Catholicism. Yeah. Why Catholicism over anything else?
1: Because it, it was a journey which doesn't have an end. Other Journeys I'd looked at, I'd looked at a lot, a lot of other, mm. other other churches and, and other traditions which were outside of my culture, but I'd always had this sort of relationship with Jesus and the Gospels.
0: Because of your upbringing as well?
1: Because of my upbringing and also because I saw human journey in his journey, everything mm. that we might be expected to go through. Um, I'm not a great fan of atonement theology, but um, that's miserable. Mm -hmm. But I believe that this being um, had something special that shows what we can expect of life. And the fact that the crucifixion and resurrection, too, was very important to Mm -hmm. me because... What is resurrected is always greater than what has died
0: in our lives. So, what comes back? So what? What comes back is always more important. What? What, what is we, resurrected? We, we move. Right. You know,
1: we get rid of something that is very often loss is very painful in our lives. Right. But once we've got over, um, well, like for me, I've been stuck in the tomb with bitterness and anger and self pity and yep. all that. All that. All that tripe, and. It's just part of the process. And then when I come out of it, I realise that I have been emptied of something that needed to go so I could move to a larger place. It's that larger place always.
0: Right. And When you say that there was no end within Catholicism, um, even within the various denominations of the church, how is that different from, for example, a Baptist or a Presbyterian or an Anglican why is there no end, as you saw it, within Catholicism, but maybe you saw an end in the other denominations of a similar faith?
1: Well, probably, um, I, that was a, the wrong way to explain it. Uh, again, it's parable. If you, a metaphor, if you compared, if I compare what I know of the Catholic Church um, with an education system, It sort of begins at kindergarten and it goes through to PhD and beyond. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah. So it's a continual learning. The learning never stops.
1: It goes to the place where words leave off. Right. And the presence is very strong. Some people call it God. Some people call it um, Allah. Some people call it Buddha. Mm. But we know it. It's there working in us.
0: Do you find when you're doing your spiritual direction and holding um, retreats and stuff, you're getting other other religions coming along to it? Do oh, you yes. get Buddhists? Do yep. you get Muslims yep. coming along to them as well?
1: Yes, I do, and 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 I've had Jewish people coming too. Yeah, yes, um, mainly Christian, but they, they do come because. Spirituality has no denomination.
0: Right.
1: It's what we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have, I I really believe in in the power of parables. And we have, when we create our own parables Mm -hmm. to explain what is happening in us. Right. There is a, a, a Sufi parable which comes from the Islamic tradition, which I like much. It's very, very simple. It says they always begin their parables about Jesus, our parables to explain Jesus' teachings. Jesus is a prophet. And this one says, Jesus, son of Mary, was walking along the road, and he saw some people huddled together, shaking with fear. And he said to them, what is afflicting you? And one man said, we are so afraid of going to hell. Mm. He went on walking, and he came to another group who were lying around. They were not interested in what was happening around them. They were simply lying, um, with the glazed look. And he said, "What is your affliction?" And one of them said, "Oh, we are longing for paradise." And then he came to another lot. They were quite different. They were full of vigor. They looked as though they had had hard times. But they were very happy, they were cheerful, they were working hard, they were singing. And he said, what made you like this? And they said, we discovered the spirit of truth. And when you have the spirit of truth, nothing else matters.
0: <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? It's a very good one. Hey, um, before we wrap up, there's a we've got a little bit of time yet, I was going to ask you, um, do you keep an eye on... Uh, other young writers etc that are coming up like do you spot other Kiwi writers and go oh there's one to watch do you know of anyone else coming up uh, that you've that you've been impressed with
1: there are some very good writers coming up but I can't read now this is the the difficulty with the failing eyesight But certainly I, I can look at the illustrators that I in children's picture books. Mm-hmm. But there is there's a lot of New Zealand books that are being sold overseas now.
0: And will you and would it be fair to say that you've gone through quite a golden era? I mean the you know, Tessa Duda, Margaret Mahe, yourself, there's a pretty phenomenal period of especially for children in YA, of, of writing through I guess you say the seventies and eighties especially a pretty special time to be a, a New Zealand author in that time. Well, it was a special
1: time because um, when we started out, we Margaret and I were had both had our first children's books published in other countries right. because there wasn't a New Zealand publisher who it did. So there was something very new happening. It wasn't a renaissance of children's books so much as a naissance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just to happen. Yeah, and. Even when I started, it was thought that people who wrote children's books um, uh, couldn't write adult material. Mm. They'd failed at real writing. Some people used to say to me, when are you going to get back to real writing? (laughs) And I'd say, this is as real as it gets.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, it must be hugely satisfying to think you've been an influence on two three generations of New Zealanders coming through it must be an amazing thought like I said I mean my my daughter I think I told you this off air if I'm repeating myself in an hour I apologize but my daughter who was 15 was jealous that I got to talk to you today she wanted to come in to the podcast and the book she went running to look for to get you to sign was chameleon chameleon I mean what age group is chameleon chameleon aimed at Sub three, three four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's very and simple, that was the one. She, yeah, yeah, that was the one she went running to look for, to grab, and she was like, oh, "Where's my chameleon, chameleon?" And she's fifteen. Mm. You know, it just must be a, a fascinating, fascinating time. Um, your memories of Margaret. Is there anything that stands out for those of us who never met her, Margaret Mahi, that you think, you think back fondly of knowing her?
1: Margaret was a good friend, and she
0: phoned regularly
1: while I phoned her. And we always ended up making up stories on the phone. Oh, yeah. But, uh, we, we, she was quite ill at the end. Bef- before the cancer, she also had Parkinson's, so she was uh, not steady on her feet. But she was al- always very cheerful. And she always had jokes. So when she phoned me and she said, Oh, I should have just fallen down the stairs. And I was carrying a lemon squeezer. (laughs) And I've now got the mark of the lemon squeezer on my right buttock (laughs) because she'd fallen on it. And I thought she was joking. And no, it wasn't. It was true.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) And she was
1: making a joke out of it. Wow. She had a wonderful imagination. Usually writers write and speakers speak. You know, we're not good at both. Margaret was superb at both. And once there was a program called Kaleidoscope. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we were both on it because we both had our first books published in the same year. We were both born in the same year. So they did something with us together at Margaret's place. And at the end of a hilarious weekend, there was much red wine and Margaret's rabbits were hopping around the floor <laughs> and trying to chew through all the wiring they had in those days with the filming. And the director said, can I, one of you, say something to wind this up? Now, if he would given me a pen and a bit of paper and a whole hour. I could have thought of something. <laughs> but Margaret said instantly... When one embarks on a weekend convivial, it can be serious, it can be trivial. (laughs) Just like that. Just like that.
0: That's amazing. Have you seen her playground, you know, her playground in Christchurch? Have you been there? No,
1: I haven't been there yet. Amazing.
0: It's like you think about someone who impacted, you know, (laughs) <laughs> the children of the nation yeah. so much, and you think perfect, yeah. a perfect, a perfect thing to leave us to leave Absol- us with. Oh, yeah. What What about yourself? I mean, <laughs> I'm not talking about you not being with us, but what you know? What do you want to leave? What do you want to be w- with New Zealand for the next fifty, hundred, two hundred years? Once you've uh, gone back to where you came from, as we talked about earlier.
1: I want New Zealand to continue to be. The sort of New Zealand we saw uh, in that Christchurch massacre. The way we revealed who we were Mm. when that tragedy occurred. I hope that we will always be that nation.
0: Because we already are. It's just a matter of enacting it, isn't it? Because if we were for that period... Then we are.
1: That's what we are now, yeah. and that's what I want to see to continue.
0: And finally, I wanted to ask you this question. I'm just keeping an eye on your time there. We've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. This is like a little TARDIS in here. The time just flies by. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Damehood. Is that the correct terminology? Damehood, that sounds very funny. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it
1: does.
0: Actually. Because um, do you officially have the title, Dame? Yes, I do. Yeah, so Dame Joy Cowley officially. But I, I, I
1: said no to using it simply because I don't use – I, you know, I, I, I said before that I really do sort of protect my ordinariness. Right. I love the – um, and especially the ONZ because that you don't keep the medals for that you, you have you pass them back on and they go on to the next person. And That's, that's like wonderful. The,
0: the, the only twenty of them or something is that? Yeah, that's yeah. right.
1: So this is my country's kindness and it was received with much gratitude. Mm. But I, st- what I am is what I am, and I'm Joy Cowley, and that's I don't wear titles of any kind. Interestingly, someone from the Dom Post phoned and said, I hear you're a Republican. <laughs> and I said, what?
0: <laughs> Hang on, just and, pause. Do you mean wanting New Zealand to be a republic or do you mean supporting what the well, Republicans I don't, in America do? No, apparently do. there
1: was some movement wanting New Zealand to be a public. Okay, gotcha, Because so gotcha. this was a few years ago. Yeah. And they said that you're anti-royal. I said, oh, goodness, no. And then she explained that, that you're not using the title.
0: Right uh, and so they made an assumption of your. They made an yeah. assumption
1: that that's what I, I was, and I, said, and I said no because it would get between me and the children I work
0: with. So if you if, if that's the 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 place you're taking about being what did you say like, tap water? You used that phrase before. Or oh, ordinary is tap water. <laughs> yeah, <sure>. yeah. <laughs> um, Why did you accept it at all? Is it more of an acknowledgement of? Because a lot of people say they accepted a, a knighted or, or or that kind of because it's an acknowledgement of those. Around them as well, not just of themselves. If if you're not going to use it, why why did what was how did the decision making go to accept well, it? Well, what what use it? What is what? Um, would happen if I used it? Oh, nothing. Nothing. No.
1: I, I mean, it's not something you use it. Just something that you think is is lovely and you're grateful for this gift from your country.
2: You might, you might get up and bumped up the first class if you're travelling internationally, <laughs> but other than that. Oh, you goodness,
0: of you, that would be cheating, though. First <laughs> class between Wellington and Dunedin. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, that was lovely, and, and I was wondering about this as well. When I picked you up from the airport, a lady came running up to you in the, uh, uh, and when you came through the gate, knew who you were, wanted to thank you for the work you've done. Does that happen a lot at the moment? Do you get people recognising yeah, you
1: people do. So I just have to be careful what I'm doing when I'm in public. You know, I can't sort of stand around picking my nose or anything like that. <laughs> like, you know, I I just uh, being aware of um, people around me who um, are going to come up and say things. Um, so, yes, that happens. It's Sometimes I, I get tired of it. Mm-hmm. I have to admit that. Because sometimes the expectations of the people yeah. you know this morning it was different yeah but but sometimes there are expectations that uh, um, and then I got an idea they' kept contacting me for the wrong reason right
0: yeah I had a, a I was watching a, a YouTube clip. It was a bunch of uh, com- comedy actors sitting around talking about life and one of the points that one of the com- comedians made, was he hates doing the selfies with people. It's actually Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey has become mm. quite a wise, erudite, you know, guru on some levels. And he says he hates doing selfies with people, he says, because that stops the world. He says he'd rather stand there and say, tell me about you and have a little conversation yeah. with them. Yeah. Whereas what people are doing is they just want the selfie and then yeah. that gets them credit on Instagram and he actually really dislikes right. it. And he'd yeah. rather just shake their hand and, 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 and spend 30 seconds with them.
1: It's something trivial, and, and you feel that, you know, this age I'm, I'm really not engrossed with trivia.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully that doesn't mean we can't take an Instagram shot before you leave. No.
1: <laughs> no, no, no.
0: But on but that no. note, Joy Cowley, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've been so excited about having you in for weeks, Jace will tell you. It's been amazing. Oh.
1: Pat, I'm just so delighted with the breadth of the discussion. We went all over the place. In fact, we went all over the universe.
0: That's what we do. And um, <laughs> and, and, and not that this is why you came. You didn't come for a for a publicity bump or anything, but it's an amazing-looking book. It's got some amazing words in it, working with those amazing images.
1: <laughs> Have you got time to read Uncle Andy's Singlet?
0: Should I try? Yeah. My dyslexia might kick in. How long is it? You might run out of time. We so. we got all the time in the world. I think you
1: had the note. The, all that, right. That shall I shall I read?
0: The- shall I read a, a story to to wrap up? this is, can I just say, not that I'm uncomfortable story, at this. Story either, time with Uncle Pat. Story time with Uncle Pat. This is a first. <laughs> Reading a kid's story. I feel like I need a sh- camera over the shoulder, Jay, so you can see the pictures as well. Almost. Almost. When, yeah. when I, I, I I, don't like saying I was a teacher because I was the worst thing to happen to the New Zealand education system. So what I typically say is, I worked in primary schools for a couple of years. You get the skill of doing this, you know, you talk to the kids and you hold it like yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. which, I, which I'm not going to do. Yeah. You could,
2: if, you, if, you, if you held it up in front of of the uh, front of Joy's face. You could uh, have it.
0: In her ah. head. well, I'll just read it. All right, Uncle Andy's singlet.
2: Uncle, <coughs> <coughs>
0: sorry. Sorry. Can you believe that? <laughs> it's hard to find a couple these <laughs> Here we go. Uncle Andy bought the singlet from an army army surplus store. It was the only upper garment Uncle Andy ever wore. It kept him warm on winter's nights and cool in summer heat. A singlet that was long enough to dry his muddy feet. Oh, I will sing of the singlet, cried our Uncle Andy. A good old cotton singlet will always come in handy. Shall we show the pictures? We did that one, didn't we? Have a look at the picture there. There's the old singlet. Beautiful, beautiful. <coughs> Moving on. The singlet made a useful pouch to carry new-laid eggs or veggies from the garden or fresh-killed mutton legs. (laughs) Uh, Once it tied a gate up where Andy had no wire, it wrapped a leaking water pipe, it beat a bracken fire. Oh, I will sing of the singlet, cried our Uncle Andy. A good old cotton singlet will always come in handy. When Andy went out fishing, he took it off his back tied a knot in one end and made a herring sack. At home he had a fry-up of little silver fishes and then he used his singlet to dry his breakfast dishes. (laughs) That's delightful. You got that little picture there? (laughs) Oh, I will sing of the singlet, our Uncle Andy cries, but there's only one small problem. It does attract the flies.
1: I think that says a lot about New Zealand, actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Joy Cowley, it has been an absolute honour. Gobbledygook was released last week, uh, obviously, in all good bookstores. Um, Thank you so much for bringing a copy down. My children are going to flip their lid when they see that there's a book being delivered by Joy Cowley. And I'm sure even the 15, they'll be fighting. They'll be fighting over it tonight. They'll be fighting over who gets to read it. Maybe I can use this to blackmail them to doing some work around the house. I won't do that. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much Please for coming in, Joy Cowley. It's just been amazing. Thank you. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, it was fairly obvious how much uh, I was fanboying. Are you allowed to say fanboying? People say fangirling, but I'm going to say fanboying. Uh, I was over Joy Cowley towards the end there. Um, a book is an amazing book, the anthology, Gobbledygook. And if you're looking for a, a present for of Christmas, I reckon she's a done deal. Now, this Saturday night, we have a really special uh, edition of the Department of Conversation coming up. Of course, for those of you who have been living under a rock, you may not be aware of this, but for those of you who aren't, World Cup starts this week, Rugby World Cup starts this week. We have a plan, and I guess I'm being a little bit careful saying a plan in case... We don't manage to get to water them. But our plan is to run a live stream broadcast slash podcast during all the All Blacks games. And we're going to do specialist podcasts called ABs Watch ABs. So this weekend, we've got journalist Dominic George in with us for the rugby game, but also former All Black Case Mews. He was All Black number 977. I believe he had 42 caps. Case Mews will be in the studio with us. So because it's ABs watching ABs, we're going to do a live stream podcast during the All Blacks versus South Africa game. We are going to be watching it. It's going to be on our big screen and we're going to be chatting. Now it is a normal podcast, so we'll be chatting about life, the universe and everything, but... If you're watching the rugby, tune in, we'll keep you company and if something significant happens during the game, a try, a score, a penalty, that sort of thing, we'll obviously kind of stop the podcast and speak to it. So this Saturday night from about 9.45, which is kickoff, we've got our first, in which we hope is a series, of ABs Watch ABs, All Blacks Watching All Blacks as All Blacks in studio here watch the Rugby World Cup with us. So tune in from 9.45 Saturday night to the live stream. And, of course, after that, it'll be podcasted everywhere as well. And we hope to do seven of these, which goes right up to and includes the final of Rugby World Cup 2019. Thanks again to Joy Cowley. This Saturday night, All Blacks watch All Blacks with Case Muse and Rugby World Cup 2019 as the All Blacks take on South Africa. Hooroo!